G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. The Story I've been to Muslim countries and, you know, you get a call from the mosque to pray five times a day. Well, in this village, an old man climbs up this really steep and slippery hill to ring a bell that goes out over the valley at five o'clock in the morning. So it's about an hour and a half before first light, calling everyone to pray. First time it went off, I didn't know what was going on. I jumped up. I thought it was sort of the fire bell or something. Yeah. Someone's hut was on because they have all these little grass huts that they make. Now that's the call to prayer. G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. We'll start off with a question for you. Can three weeks in a foreign country really change your life? Well, for Paul Sullivan, it certainly did. Today, Paul will share about his life-changing short-term mission trip to Papua New Guinea and the insights he's gained from being in a completely different culture from his own. Paul is having a chat and sharing his experiences with Shelley Scowen. Paul, I'm sure it was a pretty life-changing trip for you. Yes, it was awesome. Um, just to see the way that the people live. They, many of them live um, in a subsistence-type uh, environment. Very few of them have employment, mm. um, but they are very faithful in their uh, belief. Uh, I think something like 80% of them are practising Christians and wow. they seem incredibly happy with their lot in life. So obviously a very different place to be in than Australia. That culture shock probably hit you as soon as the plane landed? I guess so. Um, we went to a few different places. We are in the eastern highlands at Garoka, went on to Mount Hagen, and that was quite interesting. There was about a 1,000 people walked up the street with bush knives and spears and bows and arrows in a, wow. a payback situation, and yet we went on to the southern highlands to this really remote valley where we were the first white people for over 20 years and the second white person there in 40 years. Wow. And that was when the missionaries left. So in this southern highlands, little valley, the Lye Valley, um, and the village was Kip, um, the whole southern province doesn't have any alcohol. It's banned. And so rascals are not an issue. And it wasn't an issue walking. We didn't have a problem walking around any of the places, actually, in the daytime. But in this really remote village, there was no problems walking around at night either. You just felt totally safe. Wow. And, yeah, like you said, about 80% of them are practising Christians. So that's um, testimony to those missionaries that came there back in the 1950s. Incredibly. Um, I mean, there is still... I mean, polygamy is still a, uh, a thing in, in Papua New Guinea. It's still legal. Some of the really old folk, one old folk, one old man told us he had over 30 children and two of his three wives were still alive. Yeah. But um, for most people, we saw they, they practised one wife and um, the Christian faith. Yeah. Wow. So talk us through then the reaction. You were saying that you know some of the people came at you with their knives and things, but I believe some of the high school students didn't really know what to make of you. Well, I guess so. In the village we went to, they um, they um, lined the, the little track that went into it because they knew we were coming. 
and um, they yelled out very excitedly, white man, white man, white man, and yelled and waved and and mm. uh, giggled and laughed, I guess. When we got to the village, um, we actually were the guests of the chief of the village. He was the brother-in-law of a friend I'd grown up with, and she was the other white person who'd been there 20 years ago, and right. she got us into that village. So we were his guests for the um, for the week, and um, he has the only vehicle in the village, and they've only had a, a track into the village for um, probably four or five years. And I mean, it's, it's, I do a lot of four-wheel driving through abandoned parts of Australia, and the track was as bad as anything I've been on. But anyway, we got in there, mm-hmm. and when we got there, um, we walk had a quick walk around the village, and there were probably 300 to 500 of them uh, following us around, laughing and giggling, and... Yeah, so we, I mean, we spent some time there and they asked me to do various talks and even to, to preach with as little as 15 minutes, 15 seconds notice. Oh. So it's really relying on the Holy Spirit. Yep. But, um, What's that verse? they always be prepared in season and out of season. Absolutely. To give an yep. account. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, I was just, uh, I'd been woken up Sunday morning with them singing praises and, and praying and. I got in the church about 150 metres away, so I went up to the church probably sometime after five. And the church has no lights, no seats. It's just a roof and walls, and there are a couple of little stools on the side, and I'd preached there the night before, so I kind of knew where I was going. And um, so anyway, I had my little headlight torch, and I went in. I had no idea how many people were there or who was there. And... um, they prayed and sang praises until sometime before six, which was still quite dark. And then they asked me, would I mind giving them a sermon? And so I said, oh, yeah, I guess. And uh, I had about 15 seconds to gather my thoughts while there was a rustle and I couldn't even see who was gathering around me. And they all gathered around me in a semicircle and uh, the Lord undertook for me and I was able to uh, give them a message for... 15 or 20 minutes and then pray for them so wow yeah what a challenge hey to (laughs) to come up with something that's relevant to them as well that's one thing that i would find challenging where their life and lifestyle and way of thinking is just so different to ours um but then to you know think about a passage of scripture that's going to be very relevant to them i guess that's where the holy spirit comes in and guides you to the right thing absolutely i mean they're well, I've been to Muslim countries, and you know, you get the um, a call from the um, the mosque to to pray five times a day. Well, in this village, an old man climbs up this really steep and slippery hill uh, to ring a bell that goes out over the valley at five o'clock in the morning. So it's about an hour and a half before first light, calling mm. everyone to pray. Wow! Um, so that was. The first time it went off, I didn't know what was going on. I jumped up. I thought it was sort of the fire bell or something. Yeah. Someone's hut was on because they have all these little grass huts that they make, and there's smoke coming out of them everywhere. And I thought someone's hut must have been on fire. But no, that's the call to prayer. So. Wow! And so- it's interesting. The night before, on the Saturday night, the um, the chief's wife had gone out to a ladies' prayer meeting, probably nine, but after nine. And she didn't get back until eight, about eight the next morning. And she said, yeah, she and the ladies fell asleep sometime after midnight and woke up probably around three and then kept praying through till about eight o'clock the next morning. Oh, wow. Just a very different way of thinking to how we do church here in Australia, isn't it? 
Absolutely. I mean, I, I went there with a friend of mine. He's a retired anaesthetist, and his wife was a um, uh, a nurse. It's Colin Helen Pierce, and um, uh, on the Saturday morning, a lady brought up this little baby and said, "You know, the baby was dying." And so to the chief's hut, you know, house where we were, and the first thing was, "Quick, well, we must gather around and pray for this baby." And so we prayed for the baby for about ten minutes. Um, and then they were, took the baby down to the um, medical centre, and the baby had been born at home. It's uh, for any of the ladies who want to give birth. It's a 12-hour walk in a town, or you can get a, a couple-hour walk up to a, a bus and catch a bus into town. But I mean, when you're having contractions, so yeah, the the chief's wife, when she gave birth to six of her seven children. She waited until the contraction started and walked up over this mountain that I doubt few Australians would even walk over for a 12-hour walk in the town to have a, a babies. Oh, man. And I thought a half-hour trip to the hospital in a car was bad. <laughs> That's right. <But laughs> Probably anyway, helps the baby poor... come out, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. This poor baby, um, the doctor, you know, my friend and his wife said, well, look, it really needs oxygen because it had been born at home and yeah. only a couple of weeks old, looked healthy and... But only, they did have actually some antibiotics, but um, the poor, anyway, the long and the short it was, the baby died a bit later on that night. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that would be a statistic that no one would know. The baby was born at home, it died at home a couple of weeks later in a remote village. and They're not on any f- official records, but, no, yeah. No, no. So, I mean, there's huge yeah. opportunities in this village, and it's something I really want to take further. They... Um, mm. The youth minister just would love a little bit of literature that they can he can use to train the, the youth people there. The, the yeah. pastors and quite a few of them have got theological training, but they don't get a salary. They have their own half-acre garden and there's no electricity, although the, the chief has a generator, so we were lucky enough to have a little bit of electricity of a night and of a morning. But um, they have nothing. There's, there's no internet, there's no Bibles, there's no books, there's no money, there's no employment. Mm. But they're just living the faith beautifully and and happy and yeah, they, we can teach them, but they teach us a lot more. I oh, mean, absolutely! We may have blessed them, but we were blessed out of our socks. And yeah. I'm getting close to retirement, so it's sort of giving me. I've been praying for opportunities, and there's fabulous opportunities there for those who want it. You're listening to the story. Today, Shelley Scowen is chatting with Paul Sullivan, who's sharing about a short-term mission trip he went on to PNG that's had a huge impact on his life. It's great hearing all his insights, and we'll hear more when we return. The Story. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. Call 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. That's 1-800-772-936. It's a free call. Or text 0401 132 888. Hi, I'm Jimmy Colfax, and this is The Story. We're continuing with Shelley Scowen chatting with Paul Sullivan, who's sharing about a short-term mission trip he went on to Papua New Guinea that has had a huge impact on his life. As we've been hearing, PNG has a completely different culture and a totally different way of doing things. But despite the fact that the people there don't have much materially, Paul found out there was so much more he could learn from them about life in general. Paul, 
If 80% of them are practicing Christians, obviously we need to reach the other 20%, but you went over to try and build up those Christians as well. Is that the main focus of your mission? Well, in a way, I guess, but that where we were was an eight-hour drive from the remote little village. So we were in Garoka, and we're actually at the university there, and the vice-chancellor's very deeply committed Christian. And what the PNG folk want to do is set up an, an Emmaus community, which is really uh, about uh, developing Christian leadership uh, in the communities. So we went over for that. We'd actually brought about 20 or 30 PNG folk over last year to Tamworth and um, I sponsored them and, and helped them last year. And then this year they stepped up and took over some of the leadership roles while we went over and helped them out with roles that they weren't familiar with. And probably last year, a few of us will need to go over. Next year, a few of us will probably need to go over and um, just help in a few more of the the roles until they're all up to speed with all the roles and they're able to um, run their own Christian leadership. And, of course, that was in Garoka, but they want to develop that in... um, in Lay and Moresby and, you know, right through the, the PNG hmm. area, I guess. Is it difficult finding that line between enforcing our own culture on them and just telling them about ideas that actually work in our community and could really help them? I think that's where we really need to be sensitive yeah. to their culture and I don't think we enforce any of our our cultural ideas on them. We need to... Um, know and be strong in our Christian faith and help um, them work that in, 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 their, uh, in their culture. So, you know, one of the talks they actually, uh, well, they asked me to do a talk and I sort of was thinking about what I could do and um, the Lord sort of gave me the, the prodigal son, which we'd done a bit on on the Emmaus walk anyway. But, um, and so they have, you know, they have rascals and, and they have you know, inheritance of land and that sort of thing. So it was sort of, uh, and this was a talk I gave to the uh, the senior high school students. So, you know, just letting them know that, you know, they need to be faithful to the Lord and just sort of talked about, you know, not becoming rascals and giving into alcohol and wild living and that sort of thing. So, but it's, it's trying to use the faith to build up their um, faith in their culture and it's well, I just need to be sensitive so it's I mean it's, it's a different way of life you know I um, we we often you know quite often it's quite acceptable to hug here but obviously you don't hug the opposite sex because that means a lot to them so you know if you're yeah. man you don't hug a woman but by the same token it's quite okay if guys hold hands or girls hold hands it doesn't mean you're gay or homosexual or anything it means just your friends so, I mean, it was a bit of a shock when a guy would come up and hold your hand. Yeah. But you just need to try and not flinch and <laughs> and just realise that this is just their culture and who they are. Yeah. And they're just being friendly and just, yeah. And that's the importance of doing a bit of research before you go so you can be prepared for these things and um, be uh, be careful not to offend them in things that you say or don't say and do and don't do. Um, but, of course... Yeah, I'm sure there's always going to be some things that are missed in that training beforehand. Well, a as well. massive amount, and yeah. that's where it was really good. The um, the guy, the fellow we're in the remote village with, was a. We actually sponsored him to this Christian week over in Groker, and so 
two or three times a day I'd have to ask him, you know, culturally is this okay, you know, are we okay to do that, what, what, which way should we look at in doing this? So it was really beautiful to um, have that on-hand um, mm. advice. Yeah, definitely. So you obviously went there and you achieved some great things, helping the leadership there. You took a whole bunch of literature and things over with you to help the leaders and help... Not yet. That's that's what we're hoping to do in the future is get the literature in. So we had no idea what their needs were. That's what the needs are. So that's the thing that we're hoping to do is maybe get some rotary groups or something on board that might be interested in helping give some school material to the schools, but more importantly from my point of view, is uh, pastoral training material that the pastors and the youth leaders can use. And I guess mm-hmm. at some stage in the future they're even looking at getting some sort of employment for the village. They're actually looking at maybe getting some sort of um, um, tourism in the area. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, I mean, if, if at some stage down the track we might look at um, getting a, um, a big grass hut that was divided up into areas for men and women and we, you know, they can just experience a local, local culture and and um, mm. local life, I guess, and certainly be part of the, the local Christian scene and go for walks and just enjoy. It's like heaven on earth. They're just hills are just straight up every morning. The valley's covered in cloud, um, but by midday it's gone. The temperatures are are magnificent, and the soil is as fertile as I've seen. I'm an agricultural scientist, I guess, so. Um, every month of the year it's basically 25 or 26 degrees average maximum with beautiful fertile soil and mm. incredibly they don't have a huge amount of weeds. Oh, uh, there you it's go. all all hard dig- digging with sticks and a few of them got broken off bits of metal so I mean lots of things I need. We watched one poor lady that was doing her garden and it's probably half an acre a bit bigger than a house block and she dug it all with a a little piece of metal that was about 10 centimetres across as a, a, a bit of a spade and a little mm-hmm. digging stick. Oh, man. But it's so fertile. The, yeah. um, you must have been in your element then. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you must have loved it. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's so fertile that, you know, we were, well, I was walking along and one of the fellows had put, they eat a lot of sweet potato and that sort of thing and some banana, you know, bananas and sugar cane and um, passion fruit. And anyway, but... Um, pigs are very much prized and they still have, actually have bride price up there. Right. Um, but one of the farmers had, to keep the pigs out, had put a whole heap of spiky sticks in. And they're so fertile, most of the sticks were sprouting leaves and growing. I wow. mean, it'd be a gardener's delight up there. Yeah. I'd, I'd like soil like that. That'd be quite nice. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Paul, as we wrap it up, what did this trip teach you? How did you come back a changed person as a result of spending just a few short weeks in Papua New Guinea in those remote villages? I guess there's lots of passages from the Bible come to me. Um, and certainly one of the ones is, you know, it's, they've got absolutely nothing, and yet most, most of them are happy and at peace. And I think that's where a lot of Australians miss out as we're so materialistic. And... They have nothing, but they've got a, a wonderful life and a, a great faith. And I guess, you know, things like, you know, it's harder for a rich man to enter heaven than for a camel to enter, go through the eye of a needle. These people certainly aren't rich, but, you know, they live their faith. They practice it. And um, 
I mean, you know, the chief, we were, that, we were that with the chief and he had enough money to buy, he had bought his um, wife a little songbook. And so most nights we just gathered round the, the light from the generator and sung praises. As I said, there's no TV or radios there yet. But yeah, just to just be happy with our lot in life and just, I guess it gives us a, a, a new perspective on how incredibly blessed we are and how we, each one of us has a, um, a mission in life and we should be, you know, glorifying our Lord. And, you know, this, this area certainly has given me um, new thoughts on what I can be doing when I'm entering retirement in the next few years. Yes. Yeah, well, I'm sure it's given you plenty of thoughts and plenty of ideas. Uh, as a lot of people have um, told me that they, they're not so much retiring, they're getting retreaded and sent back out for service. So uh, it sounds like that might be the direction that God might be preparing you for as well. But I'm sure you'll be continuing to seek him for his will for your next uh, phase of life. Paul, thanks for giving us a bit of a, a little bit of an insight, really, into what life is like in these remote villages of PNG, where people walk three hours to go and um, preach at the church that they pastor, and then walk home again for three hours. Their way of life, their way of thinking, is so different to ours, and yet we can learn so much from their commitment uh, to the things that actually matter, rather than pursuing material possessions. Thanks so much, Paul. Appreciate your time this morning. You're welcome. That was Shelley Scowen chatting with Paul Sullivan about his three-week short-term mission trip to Papua New Guinea. And despite it being only a short period of time, it's obvious that PNG has had a huge impact on his life. As Shelley said, we can learn so much from their commitment to the things that really matter in life, rather than just pursuing material possessions. As the Bible says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, for where your treasure is... There your heart will be also. Well, how about you? Would you like to see what kind of impact a short-term mission trip would have on your life? A good place to start would be to talk to your pastor or someone who's been on a trip like Paul and see what options might work for you. Something to pray about. Well, thanks for joining us for Paul's insights and story. I'm Jimmy Colfax encouraging you to share your story with someone today. Next time on The Story. Until 1987, I did not like children except my own. There was one stage when I said to my wife, look, I'm not going to church anymore. The kids are just playing up. Kids passing out notes to each other to talk during the service and they jump up and down, do all these weird things. And I can worship at home. I don't need to go there. And then it hit me. Hey, it's not the kids. I am the problem. Dr. Harold Falge did not always have a heart for helping children. But the Lord worked on his heart and he became the founder of Harold's House for Homeless Kids. We'll hear his story next time. The Story. story. Just another way vision is connecting faith to life. 